That was the Polish revolutionary melody, Whirlwinds of Danger, which is better known as the Spanish anarchist song, A Las Barricadas. Welcome to VMN Volume 1, Episode 11. This episode features an interview with Elise Nielonigan, who is an activist centered in Ireland. She will be talking about leftist and anarchist strategy. She has a wide range of experience, ranging from the environmental movement to anarchist and anti-fascist struggles to the fight for trans rights. Welcome, everybody. We have Eilish Nilonigan. I hope I am pr- pronouncing that correctly. She'll be talking about strategy in today's activist movements and a general critique of what she's seeing in today's world. It's kind of grim out there. Hello, Eilish. Hi, Harry. So what can you say about what's happening in Ireland or where wherever you think it's most important to talk about today? Uh, Ireland's a different situation, so I don't think – I think a lot of what's happening here doesn't equate – it doesn't map over to other countries. I, I think in the U.S. you have some interesting issues. You have a rising, and I refuse to word, use the word alt-right, I'm just going to use fascist movement, that is a mixture of a bunch of different subgroups. And the way that those are dealt with is interesting, um, because this is how I grew up. This is how you deal with fascists. You confront them at any, every turn. Um, and then you have an environmental movement that has no teeth. And, you know, I, I, I have hope that Extinction Rebellion and some of the groups around them kind of get a clue, but I don't have a lot of hope there. Um, you know, I've been involved in anti-fascist organizing and environmental movement for 30 years now, and I don't see I see us losing. I see us losing, especially on the environmental front. Do you think there's anything that really can be done? I I was listening to an interview, I think it was Democracy Now!, and one of the things, or it might have been uh, from Embers, but they were talking about how we, how anarchists can intervene in things like Extinction Rebellion, and one thing that was brought up was, is it even possible to stop global warming at this point? Um, no, no, global climate change is already happening. Um, you know, and what do you mean by stop? That, that's kind of the thing that, are we talking about two meter sea rise, three meter, 40 meter? What are we talking about? Stop. We're not going to stop it. Part of the problem that I see in the modern mainstream environmental movement is this, Understanding what the problem is, but not understanding what the cause of the problem is. And being absolutely unwilling to talk about and confront that. Being unwilling to look at, and part of this is if you're in that system, it's really hard to see outside, or see what the issue is from the outside. So indigenous people see what the problem is. They know what the problem is. And Capitalists see what the problem is. They know what the problem is. People of color see what the problem is, know what the problem is. Working class people see what the problem is. They know what the problem is. The problem comes down to capitalism, 
settler colonialism, all these various different issues that we have all been working on separately. And you have basically, you know, and I see Extinction Rebellion kind of moving in that direction, and I hope they move it quicker because, you know, we don't have a lot of time. And I don't want to give them a lot of harshness because the environmental movement's been failing for 30 years. We've been failing with half measures. We've been uh, buying an old-growth redwood uh, to save it, only to have it be cut down because we've not been willing to address the problem. The problem is capitalism, the problem is settler colonialism, the problem is white supremacy. I really hope that they move in that direction, but... You know, I hope they moved that moved in that direction 10, 15 years ago when it would have mattered. One of the things that worries me is a lot of today's movements don't have an inoculation against fascism. Um, one of the local parties, uh, left parties I was involved in, I had to shove an anti-fascist plank down there because there were actually fascists rattling at the door who wanted in. And I, I addressed this with local um XR groups, and they, they agree with me, but still nothing is, seems to be done about this. What do you have to say about that? Well, this is not new. This is not new. This is, especially in the environmental movement, this is certainly not new. Um, and we saw this back in the older first days when a lot of the older firsters went and started running on, you know, talking about anti-immigration platforms. You know, we see this with the, the the rise and fall of Derek Jensen, you know, where, you know, the, the, these folks come out into the environmental movement and somehow they're they missing the point. Did you see uh, that Derek Jensen had done an interview with Countercurrent, the fascist publication? Well, is anyone shocked, right? <laughs> Is anyone shocked by this? Um, I, I, I was like, no, that, that's, and here's the thing, like, I talked to Derek, I, I knew Derek many, many years ago, um, we exchanged some emails, I liked some of his writing, um, and seeing him move first into this very top-down organization, and then moving into anti-transness, and then moving into you know, we're we're gonna go give comfort and succor to fascists. Not a shock, actually. I, I'm absolutely not shocked. Kind of the problem with like and for your radio listeners, I'm using air quotes right now, the left in the US where, you know, it it's um the Democratic Party goes and sucks up all the air every four years and, you know, you all play the uh, football game there where, you know, we're going to go back the Republican that they ran or that the Republicans ran eight years ago. So, you know, there is no left alternative within the U.S. And, you know, globally, there's some, but not a lot. So what do you have to say about these mass movements in Chile, uh uh, the fight back in Bolivia, Venezuela, Lebanon, um, France even, that's fighting against all this stuff and the stuff in Catalonia. Well, in, in France, France is complicated. France has, you have a populist movement, and populist movements are interesting 
because, yes, they bring in disaffected lefties, but they also bring in your fascists. Um, so you have the yellow vests in France who, you know, some of them are lefties. A lot of them aren't. And it becomes difficult there in the French, in the French, specifically French, um, to kind of make sense of that. Um, in Bolivia, you know, there, there are, I trust my anarchist brethren in their critique of, um, Evo Morales. But on the same token, you know, who do I trust more? State socialists or cops in the CIA? You know, one, one is, is going to, 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 you know, like, like I joked out in Ireland, send me to Mayo to count rocks and the other's going to murder me. So it, it, it's a situation of, you know, that there are left movements in the world that I trust, like the revolution in Rojava. And there's ones that I, as an anarchist, sit there and kind of look and go, okay, but are you looking at the structural issues and are you making those changes or are you just replicating? Hong Kong is one of the things that is, is very, a lot of contradictions. You've got people fighting against an authoritarian government, but they're also fighting for capitalism, so right. many of them. Right. And so it's kind of, in, in instances like that, I just kind of look at it and, you know, the CIA has this game that they play, why don't you two go and fight, where they will pit two groups that they don't necessarily like against each other, and then whoever wins, they pick off the winners. So when I see Hong Kong, I kind of go, this is not about us. When I see Rojava, yeah, this is about us, because they've actually done things there to change society. And it's a question of, are you fighting to be the one holding the whip, or are you fighting to get rid of the whip? Yeah, I think Rojava did that, but the the big contradiction about Rojava is that uh, to a great extent they were U.S. allies, which of course they got yeah, thrown it, away. Yeah, well, it was it, even that's complicated because they were taking arms from the U.S. because the the U.S. plays the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know, and so you have this feminist anarchist group. For, for lack of a better term, it's more complicated than that. Basically taking arms from the U.S. to go kill Islamicists. And now the U.S. has gone and backed Turkey, which is run by a fascist. So, and those folks are now killing the U.S.'s former allies. So it's always the one thing that, yeah, you know, lefty movements, we need Money we need in the case of uh, armed interaction. We need guns. We need tactical support. We need things like that. But you know, it's always a question of who's your daddy and what happens when that goes away. And with Rojava, they knew that the U.S. was going to eventually do something like this, and they were prepared for that. And they're still fighting. That's been the history of the Kurds for oh yeah all all of modern history. Yes. Yep. I know 
people who know more about what's going on on the ground there than I do. Um, but from what I can tell is that they've got their stuff sorted. They, they know what they're doing. They have a clear plan and they are moving forward with it. What do you have to say about what the situation in Europe? Can you break that down for us a little bit? You're closer than us. Oh, it's, yes. I am in Ireland for folks who don't know. It's complicated again. Um, I can talk about Ireland. The traditional left-right boundary in Ireland does not exist. A lot of our politics are based around civil war politics, whose granddad supported the treaty versus whose granddad didn't. Ireland doesn't need a right wing. We've had a right wing since the foundation of the state. We have two uh, main parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, who are based in right-wing philosophy. I mean, Fine Gael are the blue shirts. They literally brought in, they, they are the combination of a bunch of uh, different parties. Um, and one of them was an early fascist party in Ireland. And Fianna Fáil are right-wing parties as well. So um, the left-wing parties, and even that's complicated because you have Sinn Féin, who were associated with the provisional Irish Republican Army. And within there, you have a very hardcore conservative nationalist pro-life base. And then you have lefty Republican base. And Republican in the Irish Republican sense, not in the U.S. Republican sense. And then you have a bunch of minor parties that are essentially Trotskyists. What's the uh, Irish, the ERPs? Uh, can you say anything about them? Um, Irish Republican Socialists. The Irish Republican Socialist Party. Um, there's a few of them in Derry. There's a few of them in Dublin. There's a few of them about. Um, I think they may have uh, a few local councillors, but they're not. They're, they're not on the national scene. They're not on the national scene. They are one of the political parties that in a lot of ways has more questions than people. There's blood in the water and know that it won't last My light is brighter And I hope that it will last You think that it's direction Ones you never choose It's the way that you're facing LGBT movement in Ireland. What can you say about that? Oh, you know, it's interesting in Ireland. 
we voted for marriage equality. You know, we actually voted to work the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment was an amendment to the Constitution that outlawed abortion in most cases. Um, not one by a very large percentage. And a lot of the LGBT community was involved. We pushed through a very, very imperfect gender recognition act that is still under review and, and going through. Um, but you know, there is complications within that. We like to pat ourselves in the backs because we have, like, a gay Taoiseach who is, uh, Taoiseach is head of government in Ireland. We have a gay Taoiseach who's, uh, I think his dad is from India, so we have a gay brown Taoiseach, and we all pat ourselves on the back on that. And we have a homeless crisis that's out of control. We have a housing crisis that's out of control. Our uh, HSE, which is our health system, is falling apart. There's a reason that companies move to Ireland and tax avoidance. In Ireland, we are so small that a lot of LGBT folks are involved in different campaigns because they have to be, because we, we make alliances. And that was the thing that we saw a few years ago when a bunch of the British uh, transphobic uh, radical feminists want to come over here. They had a we need to talk tour UK and on their UK date was Dublin, which went over like lead balloon in the Irish world because we fought a war for that guys. Uh, be nice if you'd recognize it. And they wanted to come over and have a conversation, which basically means they sit up on a table and lecture us at how we're doing feminism wrong. And the thing with Irish feminism is it's very trans-inclusive. Like, do we have transphobes? Yeah, of course we do. But they are the minority voice. And they, they are not very loud because they know that if they get loud, Irish feminists aren't going to have it. So these folks tried to come over, and we had a uh, turfs out uh, letter that some of the Irish cis feminists wrote, and they basically told them to go pound sand. So... And one of the reasons that we do that is, as a community, um, a friend of mine said, we believe in power through versus power over. So if I lift you up, you're going to lift me up. So it's a situation where trans women were involved in the repeal of the eight. We're not affected by it, but we're targeted by it. You know, we're not targeted. Abortion laws don't exist to punish trans guys for having sex, they exist to punish women for having sex. So trans women, while we're targeted by it, we're not necessarily affected. Trans guys who are affected aren't necessarily targeted, but, you know, during the repeal the AIDS campaign, it was the entire trans community coming up and coming together and saying, yeah, we're going to back this. So, you know, the LGBT community is extraordinarily tight in Ireland. And part of the reason is, is, you know, it's a really small place. You can't really do schisms that you could do in the U.S. where I'm just not going to talk to these people because, you know, these people know this person who's your ex-girlfriend's aunt's sister. You know, it's this really tight-knit community, so you can't do the things that you could do in the U.S. And also it's colored by the history of this place where we were colonized for 800 years, and we're still colonized in six counties. So... When people try to make a generalization of European LGBT community, 
Uh, Ireland gets a big asterisk, and it's complicated next to it because our history is so different than the rest of the continent. What do you do? You have any advice for those of us not in Ireland? What in the U.S. where it seems like the uh, get the get the tea out movement is is starting to get some traction, or in Britain? Do you have any thoughts on strategy there? Oh. Well, and again, this is, this is, we're, we're coming, we're moving back to the beginning, right? Where the problem with a lot of lefty movements in colonist societies or post-colonial societies is that they never broke out of that system. So instead of, like, in Ireland, when someone starts saying transphobic stuff or misogynist stuff or whatever, our solution to that is a very Irish solution. You get taken down to the pub and someone has talked with you. And sometimes problems exist for years. You know, there sometimes people say problematic shit for years, but eventually there is enough talking that happens in the community that we generally reach the right conclusion. And what I see a lot in the UK, in the UK I'm more tuned into what's going on there, is that it's very confrontational. And, and that's on both sides. That's on both sides. And part of that is because they are still within that colonial system. They, they still have this, this, this is how we deal with problems. You know, so I saw someone protesting in front of the Daily Mail about transphobia in the Daily Mail. And I'm like, Wow, transphobia on the Daily Mail, that only happens on days that end with why. Why are you even bothering with this? Because it is not, you're not going to change hearts and minds there. You're not going to really achieve anything other than making yourself feel good about this. And, you know, activism that does that, you know, it's fine, but you're not achieving anything. So instead of building resistance movements to these folks. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I think it's a lot more important in a lot of ways to build community of like-minded people. So where instead of saying, and, and you know, I've done, I've done both models of activism. I'm not necessarily saying that you shouldn't do the resistance model, but I think that building, you need to start by building those communities. You know, saying, you know what, you guys are not going to, you guys don't like us, you're attacking us. I'm going to spend my time building community of like-minded people so that when we need to defend ourselves against you, I have those people. So I think that you see this happening in the U.S., especially in uh, indigenous communities, women of color communities, poor people communities. But I think that there are a lot of white middle class folks that are just like, oh, let's just reach for this tool in the toolbox that I always know how to use, that I've been using since day one, instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to figure out why we do this model of protest and what we can do to kind of change this dialogue. because. You know, screaming at turfs is fun, but does it change anything? What I've seen here is just in Vermont, we have a very famous um, peace activist who is a 
basically become more and more hateful a turf. And what has been done with her is she's just been quietly uh, deplatformed everywhere she used to have. They're refusing to let her speak or even use space. I am not opposed to deplatforming. Everyone like, like I love it when Julie Bindle uh, or one of the uh, UK turfs in the UK media sits there and cries and whines in a national newspaper about being deplatformed. It's, you got way bigger of a platform than most any other trans person I know, <laughs> and you're crying about being deplatformed. Irony much. Um, so, yeah, it's, you deplatform them, you resist against them, but I also don't like spending a lot of time on them. I don't want them to rent space in my head. Um, because the problem with, you know, getting down into the mud with the pigs is you end up dirty. So if you spend too much time, especially as a trans person, dealing with turfs, all that vile poison ends up entering you and you end up having to suck it out. It, it, it's They're not worth my time. And honestly, there's the people they make friends with are not ever going to be my friends. Yeah, I watch the local fascists and the local far-right people, basically that one person, which I will not mention her name because I don't even want to give her that much space, is she's not violent, but she has these men who who are turfs on her page that consistently, you know, are saying violent stuff. And after one of them said something about shooting trans women, um, people went and had a talk with this person and said how hurtful her what she's doing is and of course we have to report the comments because you know it's it's facebook that's what you do when people advocate violence but it's it's a very small thing yeah um you know it's like you see them making allies with the right wing i mean is that any shock is that any surprise um that there's a concept in communications about, you know, you have people with clue, people without clue, uh, and then you have people with voice and people with no voice. And I think that it's a lot more, you know, I can go and attack the people with no clue and no voice, um, but that's useless. They don't have a voice. Uh, I can spend my time going after the people with no clue and a voice, but I find it actually is more satisfying and more useful to go after the people who have a clue and no voice and go and elevate their voice, you know, because nine times out of ten, those are people we should be listening to anyway because they come from marginalized communities. That's what this radio show is for. We try to give people voice and talk about tactics. I, one of the things that I, like, Looping back to Extinction Rebellion, one of the things that I really like is that you see, you know, the little white girl from uh, Sweden, is she? I forget. I forget. Norwegian countries. Sorry, Norwegian countries. I don't remember what country she's from exactly. Um, but you see that there is beginning to be some elevation of these indigenous kids who have been saying this from day one, but they weren't a little white girl from Sweden. So, you know, that needs to happen more and more. Yeah, we need we need the kids who are growing up next to the cancer factory, you know, talking. Exactly. We need the kids kids who have asthma from 
pig shit being sprayed on on corn farms in, in South Carolina. In Flint, Michigan. Exactly. You know, I, and I grew up in 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 Cancer Alley type place, and you know I don't see any representation of kids like me when I was a kid. I don't see any of those kids. I see, and I want to see those kids. I want to hear what those kids have to say. From Embers is a show produced about anarchist ideas in practice across so-called Canada. Every week we spend about an hour going in-depth about ideas, histories, and ongoing struggles that we think are important. We're a part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. You can check it all out at fromembers.libsyn.com. have a way that this could be done? Do you have a strategy? What are you thinking about making that happen? <laughs> um, so my strategy is all local stuff. Um, so it's kind of irrelevant on a global scale. But uh, I'll give you an example of what's going on in the town, the village I live in. We have a system in Ireland that is a stain on the national reputation. It's called direct provision. And direct provision is when people who are seeking asylum because they are fleeing war or whatever come to Ireland, they are essentially housed in these things called direct provision centers. And direct provision centers are Basically, hotel rooms where you're not allowed to cook your own food, you're not allowed to be away for a certain amount of time, uh, meals are served to you, um, and it is, it sounds like it should be fine, but it's not. It is a stain on what we are as a country, especially considering that there are 35 million of the diaspora out there. Uh, in various different countries. Now, what the government does is go to small rural communities that have been losing population um, because there's this move to depopulate rural Ireland um, and decides we're going to put, uh, for example, in my town, Balnamore, um, it has a population of 915 people, something like 915. And they want to put 130 asylum seekers in there in a vacant uh, apartment complex that was built 15 years ago. Uh, it's been vacant ever since. Now, the conversation there is, oh, you know, we don't have the services because the austerity, um, they strip services down, which is kind of true and kind of not true. It's It's a staffing issue. And, oh, my God, they're going to put 15% of the population in town. One of the things that I'm always kind of, uh, there are two things that I'm always kind of aware, uh, aware of, is that the population of Balnamore prior to the famine was 1,400 people. After the famine, it was 961. So the population from the famine to today has actually decreased 50 people. 
But from the famine, or from prior to the famine to after the famine, it decreased 440 people. Where do those people go? Well, a lot of them died, and a lot of them went to America. They weren't asylum seekers. They were economic refugees. So whenever these people sit there and they talk about this, they are talking about my people. They are talking about their people. They are talking about their great-great-grandfathers. And whenever they start going on the migrant rant, I always remind them of this one town I know that had uncontrolled migration, quote-unquote, which is what they like to talk about. And in it, it was, uh, I believe, a 13-year period. They had uncontrolled migration. And at one point, 25% of that town was from uh, one specific migrant group. And that migrant group made up 75% of the prison population, 60-some-odd percent of the hospital population, and lived in squalor and poverty, in self-imposed ghettos, and property developers went in and charged them three times the rent, and this was New York City in the 1860s. So when they talk about migrants, they're talking about me, they're talking about their relatives are talking about their ancestors. And instead of, you know, I can't see into what their hearts are uh, about why they don't want to do this. Are some racist? I'm sure. Are some not racist? I'm sure there are very good reasons to be upset about a central government going and saying, we're going to do this without consultation. That's fine. Direct provision system is a stain on the reputation of this country, especially considering our history with immigration. But what we're doing is we're trying to change that conversation. We're, we can sit there and go, you know, they, they were holding a uh, protest vigil around the apartment complex where they're going to have these people. And what we decided to do instead of trying to confront that directly because it's Ireland. We do Irish solutions for Irish problems. Um, we set up a welcoming committee because at some point refugees are going to be, the asylum seekers rather, are going to be put into this community and we need to make sure that the resources are there to help integrate them into the community. So English as second language classes, sports for the kids, scouts for the kids. Um, right now, our library, for example, is under uh, financial hardship, so they've had to restrict hours trying to get some of those services put back in. We have one doctor, we need more. We've got a commitment from a doctor in a local community to spend a few days here. So it's building a movement instead of necessarily going after those folks, because those folks are sitting up there in the cold. If they want to sit up there in the cold 24 hours a day, they're more than welcome to. Um, I can spend time confronting them, but it's kind of not worth it to me. What's worth it is focusing on the needs of those folks coming into our community. So one of the things that we've done is we've asked Massey, uh Movement for Asylum Seekers in Ireland, to come in and have talks and tell us what those folks are going to need. And it's actually listening to the people that you're serving. Because a lot of times in activism, people come into this with ego. And instead of coming into this with ego, it's about listening to the communities that you're trying to serve. So um, 
do you do you ever have conversations with people really on the far right? Often I end up talking with them, and my I have a neighbor who we actually pulled out of that spot to a great extent. Well, it's we have folks who are on the protest on the welcoming committee. Um, because, it, it, and this is the thing that, that I kind of realized over the years. Um, a lot of the people, we, we like to do this far left for our right dichotomy, and that's not, that, that's, it's sometimes helpful for your Richard Spencers and, and those folks, but in the whole, people are people, you know, and some folks have very legitimate concerns about whatever, and it's, about understanding what their concerns are and assuaging those concerns. So for, um, let's try to use a, an example here. Let's talk about trans exclusionary radical feminism, right? If I am part of a population that has been abused since thousands of years ago, have, am in fear of my life because I know at least, what is it, two out of three women have been sexually assaulted somehow. I I forget what the statistic is. And this is the world I live in. Changes to my safe spaces, the places that I feel safe, scare me. And that's understandable. That's understandable, and I get that. And the problem is that those safe spaces are not necessarily safe. I've spent a lot of time in women-only space, and they're not necessarily safe spaces. They're safer spaces. They're not necessarily safe. But trying to understand where they're coming from and trying to look at their concerns, and most people, their concerns about a lot of things, as human beings, we like to catastrophize. So they will sit there and go, Okay, if we make bathroom bills, the men can come into women's bathrooms. Well, have you ever known a rapist to go, oh, I can't go into the women's bathroom. It's against the law. No, right? Okay. So why are you blaming women for the bad actions of men? And you're always going to have those people who will who will never sit there and go, oh, yeah, this is actually kind of silly what I'm thinking. But you will always have some of those people who, you know, will end up going into the bathrooms and filming women that they may think are trans in those bathrooms. And it's like, you just did this thing that you claim that we're doing. <laughs> How are you not the creepy weirdo in the bathroom? <laughs> so you need to strip from that right wing. Those folks who have, they're scared. It's one of the reasons why, like, I think that the national conversation, at least in the U.S., needs to change because you had 30 years of the Democrats basically selling out poor people, selling out black people, selling out queer people. And it's always this situation. And I think it's why a lot of the left maybe, and I was one of them, maybe underestimated Donald Trump. You know, because for years, what we have heard from the Democrats is you got to vote for the Democrat or else the Republican will get in and he's a Nazi and everything will be horrible. And then 
either the Democrat gets in and basically rolls over on his tummy and is a nice cocker spaniel and all the workers' rights get stripped away and environmental rights get stripped away, or the Republican gets in and it's just as bad, maybe a little worse, but not really. So, you know, and then eight years later, the Democrats run the Republican that was eight years ago. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you see Hillary Clinton come and say shitty things about trans women. And all of us four years ago were going, look, she has said shitty things about black people. What makes you think she's not going to say shitty things about trans people? So you see a lot of people kind of going, oh, yes, she sucks. But for 40, for 30 years, the Democrats have been doing this. So it's about changing the conversation and saying, look, these people who we think are our friends aren't necessarily our friends. And we need to sit down and have that conversation about what a left movement looks like. How do you think that people with very little power can change the conversation? Do you have examples of that? God, I wish I did. Um, I'm sure I do. <laughs> Putting me on the spot here. Um, I think that in a lot of places, people think they have less power than they actually do. Perfect example. Chelsea Manning. Let's take Chelsea Manning as an example. Chelsea Manning's job wasn't exactly high power, but she took a chance and did this thing, and now she's getting screwed for it. But she changed an entire national conversation, right? It doesn't take a lot of – it's about positioning and not power. It's about power through over power over. So if I have one person who's powerless – and doesn't have power, but I can put them in a room with a hundred people who also feel that they're powerless and don't have power, then that begins to change a conversation and say, look, there's a hundred of us. They can't ignore a hundred of us. And if they can't ignore a hundred of us, then I'm sure we can go to the next village over and find another hundred of us. And making this into a positive thing where we confront power. So I'll give you a perfect example. Portland. Portland and the fascists that have been plaguing that town. They used to live in Portland. You see a lot of anti-fascists in Portland, and a lot of them have paid very dearly for this, some of them with their own lives, confronting these guys with their own bodies making it so that it's not going to be you can come in our town and say this shit. If you were going to come here, and they are up against a police department that has a guy who used to like to cosplay as an SS officer and put a memorial to fallen SS troops in a Portland park, Captain Mark Kruger. You have a police department where the Proud Boys were setting up a sniper nest and them going and saying, lads, you can't do this, and sending them on their merry way without, you know, arresting them or their guns. You have a situation like this, and these guys are just doing it. Every time they come out on the streets, we're going to be there. Every time they come out, they're going to get opposed. So most of these people are not 
powerful people. They don't have a lot of power. Um, but there's a lot of them. And they've been building a community of practice around this. Is it perfect? No, no movement is, but it's gotten to the point where, you know, the Proud Boys can't go anywhere without the anti-fascist showing up. I suppose that's a pretty good accomplishment. Can you address the effect of social media on organizing? To some extent, it seems like it amplifies it, but it also messes it up in some way. Can you address that? We have to be careful with social media, and I think that there are good uses for it. But always remember, the far right in the U.S. and worldwide, really, relied on Twitter to become what it is. And I always talk about social media in a in a queer community context because it's actually kind of funny. I, I was actually having this conversation the other day. If you look at a lot of the things that the far right will troll trans folks for, oh, my God, you got 8 million genders and all this shit. A lot of that is back in the day, and I'm going to wave my cane here for your listeners, Back in the day when we were doing queer theory and we were sitting there forming the initial bits of third wave trans feminism, these were hidden off places on the internet that unless you knew someone who knew someone, you couldn't get to. So a lot of the sausage that was getting made was getting made by, you know, kids. And, you know, whenever you do theory, you know, theory works great in the lab, and then once you bring it out into the real world, sometimes it falls apart and everything's messy. And the problem with social media is any Egypt out there now can say, this is how it is, and that will be taken up as how it is. So the being able to test theory and play with theory and create theory and throw away theory now is basically a 14-year-old with a Tumblr account. And that's not necessarily bad, but the problem is, I think, how people interact with that, in that just because someone said it on the Internet doesn't make it true. So you see on the right wing the QAnon conspiracy theory folks using social media to push that agenda. You see the oh, George Soros runs the world, people pushing that agenda, and it gets picked up by disaffected people. And I think that the left wing has, we have really done a poor job in how we engage that, in that a lot of these folks are in that world because they are at some level, oppressed people, but they are oppressed people that no one listens to, and these folks give them voice. So I can give an example of this. A couple of years ago, Barack Obama was doing a fundraiser in San Francisco, and he said, so someone asked a question about why rural whites wouldn't vote for him. And he said they cling to their guns and religion. and he made two mistakes here. Mistake number one is he sold this to a group of white liberals in San Francisco, which was the wrong place for it. And the second thing is, I don't think he understands why that is the case. And that's the case because for 
30 years, the Blue Dog Democrats and the Republicans have been destroying these communities that it was, you graduated high school, you got your union card, you went into the factory, you, you had a living wage job, you left that factory at a certain age, you went hunting with your kids, you went to church every Sunday, you did these things. And then NAFTA happened, and that got destroyed. And there was nothing for these things. So when your culture culture is under attack, people tend to glom on to the trappings of it. So instead of addressing, yeah, these people are in these Rust Belt towns that there are no jobs except Walmart, and this is where they have moved to because they feel under attack. And I really think that the left wing, you know, when you see see us starting to get this, you know, you see this with the John Brown Gun Club. You see this where folks on the left are going and going to these disaffected communities. You see this with the Appalachian folks against coal mines. You start seeing this, and that's really where our focus needs to be because these folks should be our natural allies, but in a lot of ways have been abandoned. I guess in some ways to do this, we have to try to break off some of the left from the Democrats who are just using this stuff opportunistically. Oh, the Democrats are are, are worthless. And like, I keep mentioning them because it's this thing that drains the left. <laughs> Every four years in the U.S. I watch it. I watch good lefties. They may not be anarchists. They may be socialists. They may be democratic socialists. They may be whatever. Every four years they get sucked into this sports game. It's a sports game. And if they don't get sucked into the democratic thing, they get sucked into the third party thing. And it's ridiculous. Change doesn't happen from there. Change never happens from there. You know, if change happened from there, the past 30 years wouldn't have sucked so bad. We had Barack Obama where I knew a lot of lefties that love this guy. And part of me was like, I really want to like this guy, but I, I don't, I will not trust him. And you see what happened is that he did all these things from the executive where, oh, okay, the presidency has this power, the presidency has this power. And a lot of lefties were screaming, no, do not open that Pandora's box. And what happened? He goes away and we get this guy in who is now using all of these things to do the things that we all warned those folks about. So getting away from the Democratic Party is like, you know, I don't even really pay attention to them anymore because, you know, I just don't have any time for them. And I don't think any of us should either. Yeah, I mean, but on a systemic level, what we're I think we're seeing is the executive is just soaking up more and more power in the United States. And this has been happening I think since Reagan, with little exception, and it is a very dangerous thing, the United States supposedly fought a revolution to get rid of Britain, and now Britain has a less powerful executive than the United States. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is, again, this thing that the right wing has learned. If you're going to be involved in uh, parliamentary electoral politics, don't worry about the national stage. Worry about the school board. Worry about your local government things. 
if we were clever, we would start worrying about that stuff. If you're going to worry about electoral politics, that's what you worry about. You worry about it on a local level, especially school boards. You saw this movement in the 80s, uh, beginning in the 80s, of the right wing going after school boards. And no one votes in school board elections. No one cares. But what they did was they were able to get textbooks in that had creationism in. Textbooks that didn't talk about sexual health. Textbooks that that gave really screwed up interpretations of the Civil War. And it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Like, the right wing understood this. And I think the right wing understands social media a lot more than we do. What they do is they do this kind of wind people up and let them go on their merry way. And this is why you get pizza game. And it works for them. It works for them because their job, and it's brilliant, is to create chaos. And in the chaos, they get to do all their little evil things. And I don't think that, I, I'm pretty sure that that strategy wouldn't work for, on a leftist perspective because we're not sociopaths. But I also don't think that we entirely understand what they are doing. For a while, I was um, using a computer setup. It was Elasticsearch and Logstash to grab 4chan, 8chan, Twitter, Facebook, and try to make some meaning of that. And it just seemed like there were it was like a system that was oscillating, and you could see the different right wing actors riding waves. Yeah, um, you know, it is a problem of the big technology companies. And, you know, Facebook is not our friend, Twitter is not our friend, none of these people are our friends. And they make money off the chaos. That is what they make money off of. So, there's not a lot we can do to change that, other than break them up. And, you know, I lived through the baby bell uh, breakup, so, you know, it is possible, but there is no way in hell that the Democrats are going to do that. There is no way in hell that the Republicans are going to do that. So the question is, what do you do? You can go back to LiveJournal. <laughs> you can you can go, go boot up your MySpace again. Or you can actually get out of your uh, sitting room and actually, you know, do real social media, which is you're talking to people in your local community. You're getting out there. You're, you're creating real life spaces because, man, it's a, I, I have had arguments with people on the Internet that were vicious arguments. But the second we're in the same room, it's really hard to be mean to someone that you're sitting across from. And I think that's, from a lefty perspective, that's what we need to focus on. Yeah, these guys can go and start hitting on, like, this conspiracy theory or George Soros rules the world or trans people or a big pharma thing trying to trans your children, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if the people in my village know me and they know who I am and they know what I am, and I don't sit there hiding away in my office posting on social media. I'm actually interacting with them. Boy, that is a that is an inoculation against that virus. That is an inoculation against that. So I think like if we're looking at social media as a strategy, yeah, there's from an information 
distribution standpoint, there's really good things to do with it. But from a organizing standpoint, get out of your house. Very good advice. So is there anything else you really would like to talk about today? Um, today's Trans Day of Remembrance. Um, we could talk about that. Of course. Yeah. Um, like you and I have been friends for how long? I think it's almost 30 years now. No, no, it can't be 30 years. No, 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 no. Not 30 years, not 30 years. 90s, I guess. So is it 20? 25. 25 years. (laughs) Jesus. Don't make me older than I really am. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. It's 25 years. 25 years. Uh, God, today's Trans Day of Remembrance, and I have complicated feels about it. Um, You and I have been around the block, so we have many, many, many dead friends. Um, and it's the thing that I realized with cis folks when I talk to cis folks and I'm like, yeah, I generally expect one of my friends to get either die of something that shouldn't, they shouldn't be dying of or get killed a year. And whenever I say that, they kind of give me this horrified look and it's just the thing that you've grown used to, right? Um, and when you look at my, the cohort that, and I think you probably knew most, most of these people, the cohort that I transitioned with, there were six of us and two of us are alive now. I see less and less of that happening, at least in the Western world. Um, in the global north, I see less and less of that happening, but in the global south, it's a real issue. At least in the U.S., it's mostly trans sex workers, trans women of color, and to a certain extent, poor trans women. It seems like the the murders have Absolutely. intensified on trans women of color. Um, no, I think the reporting has. I think the reporting has. Um, and I have no data to back that up, but I think that the reporting has. I think it's always happened. Um, as horrible as that is to sound, but it was covered up. It wasn't talked about, or they were misgendered in the paper, or whatever. Um, and it horrifies me. But one of the things that there's this, I, I don't like Trans Day in Remembrance. I really don't. And part of it is, unless you every day loathe Trans Day of Remembrance coming up because you know a friend of yours name is going to be on that list or you're afraid to find out that a friend of yours name is on that list or someone you knew then I I kind of don't have a lot of time for that Um I see it almost as like this grief tourism like the folks who are most affected should be the ones that are doing this I had a big fight about two years ago with the organizers of a Trans Day of Remembrance. They had made it a practice of inviting the police. They invited uh, to speak, and just one person protested against this, and everyone jumped on her back. And, uh, of course, I supported her and lost a lot of cover, a lot of, well, especially yeah. with the death of Rita Hester, that's kind of offensive, right? Exactly, and we don't need this. We don't need to have pride featuring the cops. No. We-
the famous Italian anti-fascist song, Bella Ciao. It is one of the reasons why I tell newly out trans folks, um, especially the white girls, you do, I don't want to hear you say anything for the next 10 years. There is nothing interesting that you have to say. Because if you look at, like, like communities that have to come out, the voices that are elevated are always the ones that literally just came out and don't know shit. Um, and the voices I want to hear that are the voices that are interesting are trans kids' voices, trans women of color voices, trans elder voices. And instead of doing that, what do we do? We, we put up, you know, some trans girl that transitioned two years ago and she's white and she's conventionally attractive and she's middle class and this is what we do. And then we scratch her asses going, Oh, she has a bad hot tape. Wonder why, <laughs> you know, and, and it, the, the, and I joke, I joke with like some of the trans women I know. I'm just like, no, you are not allowed to have an opinion, no opinion for you. Um, but, you know, God, like, this is how we get Caitlyn Jenner's being, like, you know, important in the community. She's not important. She's just some dumb rich lady that, you know, has a bunch of dumb opinions. Who cares? Um, the opinions I want to hear are Lorraine Cox. I want to hear Janet Mock. I want to hear those women. Those are, and it's, if you see, I think I'm very proud of the trans women's community in a lot of ways. Um, the voices we have been elevating in a lot of times are trans women of color. Not all the time. We fail at that. But, you know, it's, we see Miss Major. We see, and I attribute this entirely to trans women of color getting that slightest bit of power and standing up and saying, no, screw this. Like, this is all that they, that, like, white trans ladies have no credit to take for this. This is all trans women of color. The strength of people who've built communities and survived is okay. something to learn from. Yeah. And in our community, like, what some of the stuff I work on is generational continuity. Um, and in our generation, you know, you and I are about the same generation, very little elders because they all died. They died during the AIDS crisis. Um, we know a few. There's a few that we knew. Um, and some of them are still around, but most of them aren't. You know, and especially in the trans community, especially if you transitioned, you know, mid-90s and earlier, you know, there was this push for you to go stealth, to, 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 to detach yourself from the community. And, you know, it was kind of in the late eight, 90s, early 2000s, where that kind of, you know, there was a lot of pushback against that. You know, it used to be that I was the only trans lady in activist circles. And now I'm just like, Jesus, where did all these kids come from? We outnumber the cis folks. Yeah, the kids um, are which something is, else. The oh, yeah, no, like, 
look, the kids drive me crazy, but their kids are supposed to drive me crazy. Um, you know, sometimes the kids have shitty hot takes, and that's fine. They're kids. I had shitty hot takes. But I am so proud of this generation coming up because this is what I fought for. This is what you fought for. This is what all of us fought for. And, like, a lot of the fights that we are having to fight yet again, they are fighting for. Um, so, with, you know, in, in the thing that I'd say um, to elder trans women, I'm just like, get involved. Get involved. Get out there. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, I'm 50 and I transitioned two years ago. I'm talking about the women who transitioned 20, 25, 30 years ago. Like, those are the ones I want to hear from. And their voices are, you know, not, not, not very many of them. Not very many of them. Um, you know, you have your Miss Major. God bless her. Um, but, you know, there's not a lot of elder, elder trans women representation. And I think it's really important, especially in activist circles, because, you know, it, and it's not a go take a leadership role. It's go say, this is what we did. This is how this went down. This is how we failed. Learn from our failures on this. Because, you know, in activism, you always end up with more failures than you do successes. Always. Always. If you're getting into this thinking you're going to win, don't. <laughs> I, I think it was Moxie, Marlon Spike, talked about in one of his videos that anarchists are more proud of their defeats than their victories. <laughs> Catalonia, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, no. Well, you know, it, 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 it's a... When you want the world, you know, you're going to lose a lot. And we lose a lot. But we, do we lose? Do, or do we change a conversation? You know, the, it's, it's, it's not this zero sum game where we're going to win a battle and then that wins the war. It's about changing how society works. It is about talking to your neighbors. It is about talking to the next generation of trans kids. It's about, you know, working with your community to change and make this world better and it's not about you know electing hillary clinton it's not you know that that's a single victory there you go you have your victory it's about those little victories where you know you go and house someone who's homeless feed someone who's hungry you do those things and they are now are in a position where they can join the fight you know, because this is not a battle that we're going to win tomorrow. Yep. I very much appreciate your time. I, I know you're a busy person, and it, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the conversation. Anytime. You know my number. If you like VMN, please consider giving a donation to pay for new equipment and web hosting. We would very much like to purchase better equipment and possibly an additional low-end computer system for our studio. We can accept donations through our Patreon at https colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash Vermont Movement News. Thank you. Well, that about wraps up this episode of VMN. I hope you enjoyed it. You can visit our website at www.vermontmovementnews. We are available on Blueberry, Google Play Music, and iTunes. We hope to add other platforms soon. 
Thank you. See you soon.